This is Dispatches from the Frontline, readings from the diary of Sister Nan Ray, who served for four grueling years on the frontline of the battlefields of World War I, read by Geraldine Cook Daphna. Nineteen fourteen, twenty sixth of October. Monday. Awaken to hear an animated conversation between the officer in command and Mrs. Cyril Ward over the compound's canvas fence. Then she brought us the news. Our movement orders had at last come and we were on tram for Boulogne that midday. Cheers and a great rush for our clothes. Such a packing up there was. Everyone too busy even to speak. Tent struck, luncheon in the town and so off to the station. Bowie and I rode on the luggage carts in charge of the sisters' equipment. We drove to the trucks in the station yards first and sorted out the big stuff from the hand baggage and then brought that around to the departure platform where the others were waiting for us. Such a dingy and odoriferous place. We sat there on the platform awaiting our train, or at least our part of it. The trucks containing all the hospital equipment and all the men of the unit, except the medical officers, were being loaded in the yards. It was about 6pm when they shunted a few carriages along and told us they were for us. We sorted ourselves out and arranged which compartments we were to have and then were allowed to go out and get some dinner. There was only one question. When would we leave? But no one could answer that apparently. One heard at 8pm, so hurry back, again at 11pm, and so on. At 8 o'clock, we were told to take our seats as the train would leave at any moment. So we made ourselves as comfortable as possible and tried to forget the smells of the place. And we spent the night just there. 27th of October. No sleep, of course. It was too cold and too noisy. Troops left at intervals all night, always singing. At about 5am, two trainloads of French wounded arrived and the civilian crowd was kept back only by sentries with fixed bayonets. We had a rations breakfast, bully beef on bread and Dixie tea among the coal dust and trucks of the station yard. It was such sweet, strong tea, sans milk in tin pannikins, but we were quite ready for it. Then we were allowed to go out to ten o'clock, and most of us made a beeline for the public baths. They said we would not leave till 3pm. Then Gabrielle and I went for a long walk along the boulevard, and at 11.45, three sisters and Dr R came and told us that the blessed train would leave for sure at ten o'clock, and that there were three sisters missing who had been granted special leave till 2pm. As I was supposed to be the best interpreter, Dr R and I went off in the fiacre to look for them, whilst the others searched in the cafes. Such a wild goose chase. Cochez, allez vite, all the time. Arrived back at the station at five minutes to one o'clock without the missing three. Station authorities obstinate. Waited till 1.15 and then an engine came along and pulled us out into the big station yard. And then we proceeded to shunt backwards and forwards, picking up bits of our train from various lines, having a real joyride and a most wonderfully bumping time. 
At last, we were all joined up and waiting when at two o'clock, the three arrived. They were breathless, a man on a bicycle directing them. They were quickly pulled up and in amidst much cheering from the unit and we started straight away, feeling much relieved. 28th of October Awakened to find ourselves travelling quite slowly through fairyland. It was very cold and although we had slept fairly comfortably, each tucked around in a rug, we felt very stiff. We dressed as quickly as possible, washing in almost a cup of water each and trying to look fresh in spite of it. Our rations of dry bread, bully beef and plum jam were served out to us and we ate them hungrily enough, though indeed longing for something hot. However, later on at a wayside station at about 11 o'clock, we were able to get some warm coffee. But the journey... I'm sure that none of us have ever before seen anything so wonderful as the country through which we passed today. It is a paradise of red and gold and brown and green and every possible tone in between these colours. Sometimes the line wander through vineyards, vineyards that are just now all pure gold on either side of us, until on one side a hillside appeared covered with copper-tinted beeches and elms with a carpet of brown-gold bracken underneath. At times the woods were so thick close up to the line that we travelled through a real land of enchantment. Every golden leaf rustling in the breeze and the very air seeming to be liquid gold, so much did it take on the exquisite colour of the trees all about. And sometimes we could hear birds trilling and one marvelled at the wealth of beauty and the extraordinary generosity of Dame Nature in these unfrequented parts. Passing through the woods, we came again to meadowlands and orchard lawns, where every tree was different and each seemed more lovely than the last. Amid them sometimes would flow a quiet little stream, cattle browsing sleepily on its banks, and old stone bridges now draped with yellowing creepers guarding its way. And always there were rows of sentinel poplars so straight and slim and elegant, every leaf twinkling and scintillating in the brilliant warm sunshine. This surely is the home of poplars, and no foliage takes autumn tints more beautifully than theirs. Sometimes they were a flash of gold, sometimes almost red, sometimes pale lemon-tinted, but always lovely. I imagine that no country at this time of the year would be more beautiful than the western coast of France, and I heartily agreed with Captain G, who said to me as the train stopped in a wonderful valley, "'Tis a country worth fighting for." We travelled continually all day, never at a very great rate. Now and again we stopped at some little siding for water for the engine and then our officers came along to the windows and chatted to us and the men of the unit scrambled out to stretch themselves. Then, of course, when the whistle sounded, there was a general rush and many had a good run to get back in time to board the moving train. There was no chance, in spite of all the beauty, to forget how terrible a danger was threatening this land. 
all along the line at regular intervals on bridges, culverts and in the least likely lovely looking spots we found the French soldiers, bayonets fixed, holding the line. We waved and they saluted. It must be such a wearisome game doing sentry go. Occasionally, we passed little hamlets, the tiniest of villages and sometimes just isolated farmhouses. The people always came out and waved and cheered in their peculiar French way. When they saw our scarlet capes, the cry always went up, Vite! Les infirmières anglaises! The sight of nurses always seems to excite them. During the afternoon, we passed several trains filled with refugees flying from their homes in northern France and on the frontier. It was a most distressing sight. They were always herded together in cattle trucks, old men, women and children, all dirty, miserable and frightened. Often the babies were crying, and their poor, tired mothers also wept when we spoke to them. All our fruit, biscuits and chocolate were thrown over to them. And we felt rather selfish to think that we travelled in such comparative luxury. At many of the stations, women appeared with baskets of apples and peaches for our train load. And at a Red Cross station, we were given jugs of coffee. So, the day passed and at 4.30pm, we came to Rouen. Here, our train drew up alongside that of the Honourable Artillery Company. They seemed extremely nice men, all gentlemen in that company, and we chatted through the windows and exchanged notes. Then our train was shunted into the railway station and the sisters were given leave to go out till 8pm. We were in parties and had a most interesting time. We visited the beautiful old cathedral, one of the finest in the world, and though it was too dark to see all its wonders, we were able to appreciate the splendid lacework in stone and marble, inside and outside, and the innumerable statues and the tombs of the ancient kings. Here too we saw the chapel of Joan of Arc, containing a lovely marble statue of the maid. Later, in the marketplace, we visited the spot, marked by a tablet of immortal wreaths and fresh flowers tied with a tricolour, where she was burned. Then six of us, with Colonel H and Major D, had a most sumptuous dinner and returned to the train. Found the platforms well guarded by English, French and Indian troops, whilst many others slept on the hard platform quite close to us. 29th of October, Thursday. Still travelling north, we left Rouen about 2am with several new trucks attached to our already long train. Indeed, at present, this is quite the longest train I have ever seen. It is amazing. The carriages that we occupy are at about the centre of the train, and just before us are those occupied by the officers. Further ahead are our transports, each ambulance car being chained to a separate lorry truck. Further ahead, covered trucks containing stores, and behind us, all the covered trucks containing the men of the unit, the baggage and all the AVH equipment. Oh, I nearly forgot the horse boxes containing our eight horses, somewhere ahead of us too. This is a very dull day. Bitterly cold too. 
and we are passing through very different country. Gone are the glorious colours and virgin beauty of yesterday. Here it is almost flat and much more cultivated. There are more small towns and more farmsteads, so that at quite short intervals we have a demonstration. We have just left Abbeville and are now on the north side of the Somme, a quite uninteresting-looking river at this point. It is most difficult to write because the train is so jerky. Several times during the night, and four or five times this morning, I feel sure we must have nearly been derailed. I did not suppose it was possible to have such awful bumps and concussions and still be standing upright. At one time, when I had my head out of the window, I thought I had lost it. Gabrielle was knitting and one of her needles was broken into three pieces. They were some bumps. It seems to me that there must be large intervals between the end of some rails and the beginning of the next ones and we just steeplechased across the hiatus. At least, that is what it feels like. At Abbeville, we passed a trainload of Indian troops. Very interesting in their khaki turbans and uniforms, and showing such white teeth as they smiled at us. At 9.30am, we stopped at a place called U, and our orderlies built a fire at the side of the train and made us some coffee to have with our bully beef, bread and jam. We have some French mustard with us, which certainly adds piquancy to the beef. It is now 1.15 and the mess sisters are asking what we would like for luncheon. Of course, there is nothing else but the beef, bread and jam. Never mind. We had a most excellent dinner last night. Cost us each three francs fifty and was easily worth it. Still... Even the memory of that cannot keep us warm today. And it is so cold. On D, we should reach Boulogne at about 4pm. From Boulogne railway station, we were driven in ambulances about five miles north along the coast road to a point between Wimereux and Ambouteuse. Here, there is a very beautiful golf course with a clubhouse, which became our officer's mess and the Hotel du Golf and du Cosmopole became HQ of the Australian Voluntary Hospital. We arrived at about 6.45pm. It was already nearly dark, and as our stores were still in the train, we had no lamps, hurricane, but we were able to obtain candles from a little cafe not far away, and with these we toured the partially dismantled hotel. We were all very tired and dirty, longing for a bath, but, as the place did not look at all clean, we dare not use the baths. Our own equipment had not arrived, so, after a picnic meal of army rations, we chose our rooms and prepared to spend a more or less comfortable night. The beds were there, and even some mattresses, but no bedclothes, but we obtained some army blankets. The next morning, we arose soon after daylight and spent a most exhausting day in entirely dismantling the rooms. Every window had two pairs of curtains and every bed was draped with a valance. As we had hitherto used only the low army canvas stretchers for all our patients, we kept many of the French beds, large and cumbersome though they were, until our new hospital beds should arrive. I worked mostly in the drawing room 
a large room which was turned into an operating theatre. It had not been dismantled at all until then. There seemed to be dozens of pairs of curtains and portiers and a large mirror screen screwed into the floor across the doorway. We swept all the walls, scrubbed and generally charred until we ached all over with fatigue. Our trainload of equipment arrived during the day and was unpacked. An almost unused railway line ran right past the hotel to Ombutu's. Such an unpacking. The dining room was the biggest ward, A1, but all rooms, however small, were used and the beds were crowded in. We were all working at high pressure because we knew there was fierce fighting and wounded might come at any moment. Thank you for listening to Dispatches from the Frontline. This project was directed by Naomi Edwards, read by Geraldine Cook-Defner. Original music and sound design by Zoltan Fecho, with producing support from Tristan Meacham and voice editing by Alex Defner. The creative team gratefully acknowledges the support of the Victorian government through the Community Support Fund and Public Record Office Victoria and Creative Victoria with Regional Arts Victoria through the Sustaining Creative Workers Initiative supported by all the Queen's men. We would like to thank the Selman family and in particular Meg Selman for allowing us to use Nanray's diary.